Now, because we're going to later on, whenever they arrive, have a lion dance here, I thought for this evening just to talk about some of the traditional parts of Buddhism. Some of you know the chanting which we do, the bowing which we do, why we sit in meditation, this position or another position. And to take away also a lot of the of the myths which surrounding some of those traditions. One of the nice things is that every country has developed these different traditions and all types of practices to do with religion. One of those traditions which was very strong in early Buddhism was your ability to ask questions. I don't know about you, but when I was young, you know, I was interested in going to different temples, different religions, and wanting to ask questions. Just what was said was not enough. I wanted to take that deeper by having people ask questions. And I know that you know, some of those questions, people, they say in order to try and test you out, to see, you know, what type of a monk you are. And I must admit, the most challenging question I was ever asked was when I went to uh, give a talk at Mercedes Girls' School over in Perth. Now that's this cottage just next to the Catholic Cathedral. And it was only like a group of, I think, 14-year-old girls. And so I gave a talk about Buddhism, did a little meditation, then I asked them, has anyone here come, have been to Mercedes school, girls' school? Oh, good. Otherwise, <laughs> I might get busted. <laughs> so anyhow, the, after doing some meditation and talk, any questions? And one of the girls sitting in the front put her hand up. This was many years ago, maybe 35 years ago. And they said, Ajahn uh, Brahm, do girls still turn you on? <laughs> they asked that question. You know, sometimes it's great being open to any questions. But fortunately, they were also open to no answers because somebody else sitting next to them said, oh, don't embarrass us. Apparently this girl was always really naughty in that class and was always like trying to tease you. But you know what the answer was? You don't, do you? Do you? Okay, so I won't tell. <laughs> no. But anyhow, what was happening was very beautiful to be able to at least, you know, respect every question which was put. And there is no such thing as a stupid question. In fact, in order to make sure that people feel free to ask questions, whatever those questions are, there's a couple of stories about people asking questions or not asking questions. One of those stories is from one of the suttas. This is like the suttas are the teachings of the Buddha. They're written down. And you know you can't really argue with them because um, they're repeated so many times in different places 
you can pretty much guarantee this is fairly accurate. And they, it was a story about the law of karma, because somebody came and asked the Buddha once, now why is it, why is it that some people are rich and other people are poor? I don't know about you, but how long you've been working or you know, trying to make some money to pay the bills, it's always really difficult. And even some of you have been working your butt off. You know, you've been studying, get some businesses or whatever, and you still find it hard to make ends meet. Even doesn't matter how hard you work. But other people, they seem to just, money comes to them. They get a business and it really takes off. Or they don't even do any business. They go and win the lotto. Did any of you win the lottery last week? <laughs> you know what happens, if anybody does come into money like that very quickly, you never see them again. It's really strange, but they all ask, especially Thai people, please excuse me, but Thai people, they always look at monks and think, oh, monks got powers, they know what number's going to come up next week. Once, I was in Thailand, just being a, a wandering monk, meditating a lot, and I was just sitting in a quiet place, just you know, starting some meditation, and a woman came up to me. She saw me going into the forest, she came after me, and she didn't know I could understand Thai and also Lao. So she just put in front of me a piece of paper, a pencil, and a bottle of Pepsi-Cola. You know what was going on, don't you? The bottle of Pepsi-Cola was my fee for giving her a lottery number. When I said, no, I'm not going to do that, and gave the piece of paper back to her, together with the pencil, she took the Pepsi away. <laughs> no number, no fee. <laughs> so that's, that's I went thirsty. That's much better than doing silly things. But why is it that sometimes people, they have such good luck? And you know, they go on YouTube or whatever, TikTok or whatever, and make lots and lots of money. What about you? You work so hard. When you make a little bit of money, the tax takes it all. <laughs> or other things happen. So the Buddha, actually, in this little story, he gave the reason. You know, why the actions you do in the life before, why that will cause you to be wealthy in this life. And such a good answer. For those of you who want to know, it was actually just being generous. It's like if you know how to use money, not just for yourself, but to share with as many people as possible. It's like in your next life, life can give you extra, because you know how to use it. Okay, so, the next question this guy asked was why is it that some people are just so beautiful? They don't need to go to a spa or go to, uh, to what was it, uh, Gangnam in Seoul to get a facelift. They're just naturally beautiful or naturally handsome. 
I'm old, I'm not handsome, but still I get lots of people taking photographs of me. When I really was young and fit and thin and healthy and handsome, no one wanted to take a photograph of me now, then. So I find it kind of weird. But anyway, when I said this story first of all about why it is, what you got to do so that you're very beautiful in your next life or handsome, and why some people, it doesn't matter how often you go to faceless or fashion or whatever, still you're ugly. When I first said this, I was in a big talk over in Singapore, and this woman asked me afterwards, she complained. She was really angry at me. Because she said, why were you looking at me when you said the word angry? I had to be looking at somebody, but why me? So you notice now, whenever I tell this story, I always try and look at the carpet. <laughs> Gets me out of a lot of trouble. Even worse trouble, if I start saying beautiful, and I have to be looking at somebody. In the old days, I just look at a guy, but that was even worse trouble, <laughs> if I said look at beautiful. <laughs> so, so, he gave a wonderful answer. You know the answer for that is if you are, keep good virtue, good conduct, good speech, kindness, that makes you beautiful in your next life. Interesting. But then the main question was, why is it that some people are really intelligent? You know some of your kids, they go to school, they don't do much work, they still get you know, straight A's. Other kids, you give them extra tuition, you really encourage them, come on, you can do this, and still they fail, they get straight F's. <laughs> Why is that? I don't know what it was, but I, I didn't do much work at school, I just enjoyed my doing things like maths, and I always tended to get you know, top marks all the time. I didn't realize what I was up to. That's why I got a very good education, all for free, through scholarships. Not trying, but just by enjoying it. Maybe that's why I always understood that meditation, you never get much depth in your meditation through trying, but through enjoying it, and feeling just what great benefit it is. You love doing it, you weren't forced to do it. So even when I was a young monk, I never went to uh, meditation detention or meditation extra classes. I just always liked it. So anyway, the reason why people are very intelligent in their next life is because they ask questions in this life. So now you know that Eddie is going to be a Nobel laureate in his next life. <laughs> <laughs> he asked so many questions. <laughs> is Eddie still here or is he waiting for the lines? Did he, did he hear that? I hope he heard it and didn't miss that. <laughs> but you can understand why. It means you're inquisitive. You do sort of test things out. You ask those difficult questions. You really want to know. And I respect that so much that uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this uh, teacher called Krishnamurti, 
remember when I first started listening to him as a young man, I was very interested until once he gave this talk at the New York Public Library, I think it was, and many people just asked really silly questions. This one guy asked this really deep question, it was quite challenging. When I heard it, I was really disappointed. I think the Krishnamurti said something like, do I have to answer every question? He was just you know, avoiding an answer. And that was the point I turned away from that and made a resolution that if ever I become a teacher and someone asks me a question, I will always try my best you know, to answer it the best I possibly can. Because answering the questions are even as important or more important than actually giving the talk. So I respect questions. So those are the reasons why that in Buddhism you can always ask a question, you can always challenge the teacher, you can always just test them out. In public it's even better. I remember many conferences which I've been to. I love conferences too because you get some of the best questions in conferences. I was telling somebody recently that when I was, I think it was t uh, one of the first global conferences here in Perth, and we were talking about, you know how long ago this was, about the possibility of having fully ordained Buddhist nuns in the world. Dharmasara didn't exist at the time. There were very, very few women who had ordained. And somebody asked me, I was on this little panel, over in, I was in the convention center, what do you think about the ordination of Buddhist nuns? And I said a few words. And it wasn't just as positive as you might think. And then one of the Buddhist nuns from the Foghuang uh, Shan Temple, she put her hand up and said, she scolded me. She said, Ajahn Brahm, that's too patronizing. You know, you've got a lot of influence, you should do more for the sake of Buddhist nuns. And I took that seriously. That was, those of you who remember, that was Venerable Yifa. And thanks to her, I said, well, actually, you're right, I should do more. If you just look at your own conduct without taking some feedback from others, you can get a very narrow idea of who you are and what you're doing. And I took what she said so seriously, now you know what happened. That, you know, you gave that full ordination to bhikkhunis, you made it work. She said I was being patronizing before. And she was right. So thank you for those questions and those criticisms. Because actually it's, that's the feedback which monks need and nuns need and everybody needs. That's one of the reasons why questions is part of our tradition. But not just the questions, some of the things which we do. I've said a lot of times about why we do our bowing. And this is important for everybody to know. How should you bow? Should you do the, the full bow, which is right on the floor, like the Mahayanas do, or the, the Vatrayanas do? Or should we do it just the way that uh, these Theravada monks like me do, just bow three times? I remember seeing uh, in the Khmer tradition, instead of actually bowing, they just put their hands down and go, and that's their three bows. 
And I thought, that's a bit lazy. <coughs> so what we do is like kind of the middle way, not full Tibetan, but just the uh, Theravada bow. But more than that, more than just, are you doing it right or doing it wrong? The most important part of the bow is not exactly your movement of your hands or whatever, but what goes through your mind when you're doing that. And many times I've uh, taught and encouraged that the way to do the bowing is what does, you're bowing to a monk or to a nun or to a statue, what are you really bowing to? You're not just doing that because that's what you've been told culturally. That is just like, you know, putting incense into the bowl. It took me years to figure out why, you know, when I was taught, you know, in the monasteries in Thailand, you know, you put some incense there, three incense, and you just put it in. But then I've seen in other traditions, you may have seen this yourself, they take, you know, maybe 30 or 40 incense sticks, a huge amount of smoke coming out, and they shake their hands like this. And then they put, put it in the pot. Have you seen that? You know where that comes from? It comes from the tradition in so many Asian countries, the first time you go to a temple is your grandmother takes you there. That's kind of her job, to take the children you know, to the temple. So grandmother teaches the children how to put incense you know, in the incense container. Grandma's got Parkinson's. And it's the kids. <laughs> the kids think, oh my goodness, that's how we should do it. So they do the same. And now it's become the culture that everybody does. <laughs> you don't have to do that. And even here, we don't put any incense in here. And even in the other hall there, we light a two candles and usually one incense at most. Because I remember just, I remember just going to you know, we could do we could view autopsies here when I first came here, because Dennis, who was our president, his neighbour was the coroner, so he talked him into letting the monks come into the autopsies. And I remember talking to the uh, the surgeon there in the autopsy place, and I just asked him, just in those days, many people smoking cigarettes that was bad for your health. I remember asking, what about incense from incense sticks? He said the same. That's why we don't want to kill you. The main reason I don't want to kill you because I'll have to do the funeral and I'm way too busy. <laughs> no, it's not just personal. It's just you don't want to harm anybody. That's why we don't have much incense here. And that is because it's a tradition. We understand what it is, why it is. It's a way of paying respect you know, to the Buddha or to the Dharma, the Sangha. And again, when we do the bowing, again, we always do the three bows. Why do we do three bows and not four bows? Not two bows. The reason why I do three bows is what you're bowing to. And I always thought that it's not a statue. The statue is metal or wood or could be all sorts of materials. So what it represents. So my first bow is to virtue. My second bow is to peace. My third bow is to compassion, kindness. And that's what I always do. And I remember, okay, this is an old story, I tell it every, I didn't tell it last week though, 
because I wasn't here. <laughs> so I'm sure. But I remember just telling it, just told this story at the Solaris Cancer Group last Tuesday. My first bow is to virtue. And the reason I started doing this, because years and years and years ago, when I started going to the Cancer Support Association, as it was called at that time, to teach a bit of meditation, good attitude for dealing with the disease of cancer. And it really worked for them, so much so that I became one of their main teachers. And I still recall that uh, facility over in Cottesloe, that the local MP who also happened to be the Premier at the time, that was Colin Barnett, decided to fund a big sort of uh, facility over there with many new buildings. And so when they had the opening, they asked me to come to the opening as well. One VIPM and one VIM. VI Premier and VI Monk. <laughs> that was me. And I was really kind of surprised. Why did you invite me? Yes, I'm a leader of Buddhist uh, people, but this isn't Buddhist people who come to the Solaris Cancer Center. There's all sorts of people who come here, anyone who has cancer. And they said because of just the teachings and the help which I've given for such a long time. And I enjoyed giving a blessing for that center. And I also in, enjoyed because the Buddhist blessing is always goes with holy water. And I also remember just, I had to ask the bodyguards first of all, is it okay if I sprinkle on the premier? <laughs> and so Colin Barnett, who was a premier at the time, he got a blessing as well. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that. But anyhow, one of the people who was also used to go there uh, to help uh, was, he was the, the chaplain of Christchurch Grammar School, the chaplain, Frank Sheehan. Was it Frank Sheehan? Yeah. And anyway, he became a good friend. I found it important to make friends who were not just other Buddhists. I wanted to actually have a wider um, circle who could ask me questions. I found that really important. These were other religious leaders who could actually question me to make sure that I kept honest and truthful to you know, how I was practicing. So anyway, that it was he who said, I like your talks, I like your silly jokes, do you like my silly jokes? Okay. I just tested, you know another one's going to come. I tested this out just on someone a few minutes ago in the reception area about this young, young man who invited his girlfriend to the school prom. And she accepted. So he had to go out for the tickets and buy the tickets. And when he went to the place where he could buy the tickets for the prom, there's this huge queue. So he had to uh, wait in line until his turn came up, and then he could buy the tickets. Then he had to get the, the limo to go to the prom. There was another queue there. He had to wait in line before he could get and reserve a limo to take him and his girlfriend to the prom. And then he had to get some flowers for his girlfriend. He had to wait in another line at the flower shop. And then he had to get a nice tuxedo to wear 
And that was another queue. And you had to wait in line there. And then when they actually got to the prom, and they even to get in, another line they had to wait in. And when they got inside, he asked his girlfriend what she wanted to drink. And she said, I'll take some of the punch. And there was no punch line. You must have seen that coming. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> sorry. So anyway, that so they it was to the, uh, the Christchurch Grammar School that they invited me, and that was very wonderful because I like it when I don't have any plans, and I never had any plans what I was going to talk about. That was to give the morning assembly talk. And so I went up, I was, had to stay outside first of all, with the principal, myself, and uh, the chaplain. And they said that in the, there was a, a strong Anglican Christian school, Christchurch Grammar. So they said, we wait inside, outside first of all, and when we go in, when the kids are all settled, we'll do a little bow to the statue of Jesus. He said, you're a Buddhist monk, you don't need to do that. That's what the principal said to me, you don't need to do that. My response for that, many of you know me long enough, know my attitude. I said, I demand my right to bow to your statue of Jesus. She said that. And you should look, see the look on the face of the principal, the headmaster of Christchurch Grammar. He thought, <laughs> what have we invited to our school? Before, uh, fortunately, the Frank Sheen knew me very well. So he said, no, he's always like that. So we went in. And that was my subject for the talk that evening. What do, why do Buddhists or anybody bow to the Buddha statue? What are, they, what are they doing? And I explained, you bow to what you see in that statue which you respect, which actually inspires you. It's not the metal. I am inspired by what it represents, the virtue, the goodness, the kindness. Actually, I'm going too far there. The virtue, the honesty. Have you ever lost your keys in a place like this? We'll actually let you know. We won't ever steal anything from you. Look, we don't even ask for any money when you come in here. We don't sort of collect your details if you don't want to give them. This is like virtuous, a kind place, a safe place, where you're not exploited, you're not asked to do anything. And that virtue is something which I respect, I've seen so, it's quite rare in this world. How many people in authority can you trust? All the monks and nuns here, you can trust. If they do anything which is inappropriate, that's my job to find out and tell them off, or do something. You know, that's, we take these things seriously. We now have mandatory reporting in Western Australia. 
if I have any doubt about any misbehavior, you have to tell the police. That's one of the reasons we take those promises seriously. When I first took over being a monk here, that's one of the things which, before I accepted becoming a teacher here, before I accepted, I spent about a week looking at myself. If you're the leader here, you have to have very, very good virtue. If you've got any weakness in your virtue, you should not take on this leadership position. I don't want to disappoint any of you. I have to be confident that I'm a good monk and what I practice, what I say I do, I actually do. And you've seen me for so many years and that gives you that virtuous strength. And I ask the same of all the other monks and nuns here and all of our committee members as well. So there's nothing which is of any doubt. Imagine if that was like in the government, in the police force, in all the schools, that people were actually so honest, they would never ever tell a lie. What a wonderful world that would be in. What a wonderful place it would be if you have a partner in life you could trust. They would never ever tell a lie to you. Please be somebody like that. If you've committed to a partner in life, please tell them, you know, partner, darling, you can tell anything to me. I may not enjoy what you say, you may challenge me, but as long as you tell the truth, I will never scold you. I'll be disappointed, but I'll never shout at you. I'll never want to break our relationship because that bond of honesty is one of the most important. Imagine if you tell that to your children. Children never tell a lie to mum or dad. Doesn't matter what else you do in life. Now if you, that story about that Sri Lankan girl, first year at university, she came to see me. I'm in big trouble, Ajahn Brahm. So why? She said she was pregnant. Have you told your mum and dad yet? No, they'll kill me. That's what I've come to see you for, Ajahn Brahm. You can tell them for me. <laughs> she trusted me. She'd grown up with me. You know, I was her monk for a long time. And that was a beautiful thing which I could do. And I told that story, look, please, if you've got children, please let them know you can tell mum and dad anything. We're here to help you. Your if your, one of your children get pregnant or they get into drugs, they need mother and father's help. They don't need to be afraid of mum and dad in these very, very difficult situations of life. They need you even more. It's the same when you have a partner in life and they do something wrong. Please forgive them as long as they tell the truth. We all make mistakes sometimes. So anyway, that 
a sense of truthfulness, of honesty. That solves so many problems in this world, if we can start with that honesty. We all make mistakes from time to time. So, that's why I bow to virtue, first of all. And the reason I bow to it, because I want to put it up here somewhere, to really respect it. You know, it encourages me to be more virtuous. And the second thing I bow to is peace. Whatever peace means to you, in your family, in your life, in your profession, in your country. Imagine what it's like when you really feel peaceful, in your meditation especially. I just worship peace. And the last thing I bow to is kindness, compassion. Every time I see a compassionate act, I really worship that. So when I said that, you know, to this ritual of bowing, I was really surprised just how easy it was to understand. Because after that talk I gave, the principal was, he was seriously impressed. So he said, can we come to your monastery for a school visit? And I remember those kids from Christchurch, Grammar. Of course, I took them inside my cave, which I have there. And the boys there, you know what they said when they came inside my cave? That's where I live. That's where I meditate. They say, this would be a great place for a rave. <laughs> <laughs> but also, the other person who came was the principal himself. And he asked if he can have a, a look inside our main hall with a big Buddha statue there. I never needed to ask him. He just went right inside and knelt down and bowed three times and I bowed next to him. And he was a devout Christian with a reputation. It was his job to be the principal of Christ Church Grammar School. He had no problem at all of bowing because he understood what the ritual was. It's the same with you know, some of these other rituals we do have like five precepts. Unfortunately, the where I was, it was ritualized. So every time you went to the temple, you had to take the five precepts. And sometimes the eight precepts on the holy days. You've heard that we have eight precept days. And that was why it was really strange when I heard going to a Sri Lankan temple, that was over in uh, Melbourne, they told me something I'd never heard of before, the 13 precepts. <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever heard, what on earth are the 13 precepts? And the guy who was telling me said, well look, it's simple to understand, because of the eight precepts, the most difficult one is you're not eating afternoon. Just like the monks, you only eat in the morning time. From midday, all afternoon, evening, night time, until the dawn of the next day, you don't eat anything. Like fasting most of the day. And that's very common in traditional Buddhist temples in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, on the moon days. So he said, I'm going to keep 13 precepts today. I asked him to explain. Eight precepts in the morning, 
and five precepts in the afternoon. <laughs> it's a scam. <laughs> so anyway, the Thais can't get away without some criticism here because I remember going to Thailand and seeing when people were taking the five precepts, they chanted the five precepts perfectly. Parnati Pata Viramani. They usually put your hands up in Anjali like this. And I saw one of the Thai people taking the five precepts, chanting it perfectly. <laughs> Had one finger down. I thought, what are you doing that for? Is your finger s sick or hurting or something? No, they said. I'm only keeping four precepts today. <laughs> That's actually messing around with the traditions. But it's interesting to watch. Next time you go to a place like Thailand, have a look. <laughs> I saw one, with the, whole, the whole finger's down. They're still chanting everything. That's not the meaning of traditions, that's corrupting them. If you don't want to take the five precepts, fine. Just leave them alone, but don't sort of kind of lie and misrepresent by doing the chanting, but not actually doing the practice. You know when I first took the five precepts, I was a lay person, going to the different temples, reading up, and then I was uh, used to go to the Thai temple a lot. It used to be over in Richmond in those days. And then the monk saw me and said, you've been coming here many, many times. I think it's about time you took the five precepts. And I had to ask him, what are the five precepts? And he said, um, not deliberately killing an, another living being. And I said, why do I need to take that? I've been keeping that for a long time. I was a vegetarian. I wouldn't even swat a fly. Even right here, you know, apparently I was told today that we've got mice in the community hall. Ah, the mice are just so sweet. You can play with them. Have you ever seen the mice we have here? They're just not sort of, I don't know how different they are, they just uh, don't seem to be dirty at all, really, really clean. So I remember just a few times seeing a mice and when somebody puts a trap out, we think I should go and protect it or something. That's how I feel, I've got, got some compassion for mice. They're really cute. Next time you see a mouse, have a real look at it and stroke it, it's this beautiful fur. It is, I'm not joking. <laughs> but so, so we don't do that. We don't kill living beings. We don't steal. It's even to the point in those days, when I was a young school kid, if the, if the bus conductor never asked for the fare, which your fault, I'm not gonna pay. But even when I was, became a meditator and started going to Buddhist temples, no. You know, someone's got to pay for the bus. Even if they didn't ask for the fare, I would always pay it. So you forgot my fare, here it is. And I, I love doing that because it was the honesty. And even over here as a monk, it really honestly does pay. 
when we started building Bodhinyana Monastery, I remember going to the woodshed, the collies at the time it was called, and we ordered a lot of wood. We picked it up, you know, so much wood that when I got it back to Bodhinyana Monastery, I found there's a many, many of those uh, planks. They weren't on the bill. The guy had missed them. So, of course, you know what I did? I put them back onto the van and had the Anagarika with myself drive us to Collies again. And I said, see these over here? Are you returning them? Not returning them. We want them, but we didn't pay for them yesterday. They weren't on the bill. I showed him the bill. I mean, you just want to pay for these things when you already had them back in your monastery? Yes. So just hold on a bit. And he went to see the general manager. And the general manager came down. I thought we were going to get into trouble. Look, it was a totally uh, honest mistake. So much wood that you, you missed putting that on the bill. And he said, no, I just come to see if this is really true. You very rarely hear about things like this, people being so honest. And so he put Bodhinyana Monastery, the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, on the same discount as ordinary builders. We made so much money out of that <laughs> by getting a discount for many years because we actually were wanting to pay a bit of wood which we hadn't actually brought. So I always remember that. It's, it's lovely being honest. And then, of course, not committing adultery. And that's very easy as a monk. But I was a lay person when they asked me this question. They said, you know, do you you know, are you um, sexually appropriate, whatever you do in life? And I said, look, I'm a student. As a student, you're very poor. You know, having one girlfriend is probably more than I can afford. And I was honest, it wasn't just that. It was the fact that, you know, you never wanted to harm or hurt anybody. If my girlfriend had another boyfriend, I'd be very upset. I'm not talking about being a monk, I'm talking about when I was a student, okay, a layperson. And lying. I never liked to tell lies, even as a young boy. It always made me feel very embarrassed. Why do you need to tell lies? You can always tell the truth. Even to people you love the most. To everybody, how you feel. And anyway, the last one was not taking alcohol. I'd given up alcohol a long time ago, you know, simply because I couldn't see the purpose in it. You could have much more fun without it. So when this monk said, you want to keep the five precepts, my answer was kind of arrogant. I said, why do I need to take the five precepts from you? I've been keeping them myself for quite a few years already. And I was totally honest. You could see the purpose in them. That's one of the reasons why. Do you always need to take the five precepts? No, keeping them is more important. What happens if you make a mistake? You break a precept, does that mean you're not allowed in the, the temple anymore? That means you have to be publicly flogged? Sometimes when one of my Adigarikas broke a rule and he said, oh, what are you going to do to me? I'd done broken a rule, and I said, just acknowledge it, forgive it, and learn. He said, no, that won't work, I need to be punished. So that's when I told him, okay, 
a good Australian punishment, what they used to use on convicts in the early days. Somebody reminded me of this the other day. 50 strokes of the cat, I said. And this Anagarika, he didn't know me that well. In fact, that he thought I was, he was going to get whipped. You see, you know these Anagarikas, they wear white clothes. And his face went whiter than his clothes. So because of that, <laughs> the, you know, I told him what 50 strokes of the cat meant in a Buddhist monastery. At that time, we had two or three cats living in our monastery. Find one of them, put it on your lap. One stroke, <laughs> two stroke. Learn some kindness, compassion. Because compassion is really important, kindness. Those become the, the five precepts. That's really important. So that's what the ceremonies, when you find meaning in them, and you understand what they're there for, then it's easy to participate. And they're not just ceremonies which have no meaning at all. Even the ceremony of Christmas. I remember Ajahn Chah asking us, what is this Christmas business all about? And we said straight away that peace and harmony to all beings, peace and love. We said, okay, we can celebrate that. Why not? So every 25th of December in our monastery in Thailand, he would come there to celebrate Buddhamas. <laughs> That's what he called it. <laughs> Why not? So it's a beautiful time to have your teacher with you. So what we did, we had ceremonies and we made use of them in a wise way. And that meant you have wedding ceremonies. You make use of them in a wise way. That's why I often get invited to do the blessing, not just the, the chanting, but doing the words, you know, to allow people. Eddie, just be patient for a while. Another five minutes yet. Yeah, but they, ha they have to wait. Five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so in order to do that, that's, um, that's one of the reasons why at a wedding ceremony, you often give this advice. What does a wedding mean? And the wedding means you commit together. I really mean this, that one person and one person, it should be counted two, they do become one. And when you really get this properly understood, you never think of your partner, you never think of yourself, your mind changes to think of us. You commit to us more than me or them. That's one of the reasons why it has some spiritual part to it. It's like a letting go of your own wants, your own self. It's like being a monk and serving. But you count too. You're in it together. And all of those that are uh, things actually help people. That's why we have these ceremonies, to actually to understand what we're actually doing. We're not just following other people, we're understanding deeper. And also death, we all know that death's going to happen. 
we just make sure that we don't just think of what's been taken away. We also, and do really mean, celebrate and value what we've had, the life we've had together, which is really, really, really important. That's taking all the ceremonies which we have in our life and turning them around into something which is very useful and wonderful. And when we can learn how to do that, then all these great celebra uh, ceremonies in Buddhism or in Chinese culture, Sri Lankan culture, Malaysian culture, whatever culture, we can make the best use of. So I'm going to have one or two questions first before the lions come in. Any question from the audience? Or, yeah, okay, yes. Painful or tough? The truth can be perceived as painful or tough. Of course it is painful and tough sometimes, but it's worth it. As you all know, if you ever have something you keep as a secret from other people, especially important people in your life, that hurts deeper and longer. I do remember this story of this a man who was in Holland during the Second World War. And he always had this commitment, a strong commitment to telling the truth. And uh, he was also a very compassionate man. And when uh, two German SS officers knocked on his door and asked him, are there any Jewish people hiding in your house? Because you know those stories in those days. If he if they had found any Jewish people, they would have been sent to one of the concentration camps and killed. There were a couple he was hiding in his house. So what could he do? He opened the door and said, come and have a look for yourself. And because of his moral strength, they said, okay, thank you, sir, and moved on to the next house. They never came in. And he said that was a great test of his commitment to truth. The way he looked, his demeanor was so confident, the German SS officers just went away. I'm kind of impressed by that. Now, if you are honest, even if it's very difficult being honest, it's like the honesty protects you. That's something more spiritual. But that's what I've seen and that's what I'm confident in. And that's only rare cases. Most of the time it's more painful to be dishonest. Yeah. In the back of the... yeah, that way. Thank you. Thanks, Ajahn. Um, you mentioned how, I guess, what makes some people intelligent in this lifetime is that they were curious in the previous one. How do we tap into who we were in our previous lifetimes? You learn how to meditate deeply. Because when your mind gets very still, you really get into this meditation, then 
uh, your mind starts to get empowered. That information is not stored in the brain. The brain comes in from this life. But the stream of consciousness, what we understand as the mind, that has had many lives before. That's where you can remember some of those early stuff which happened before. You know, it's a mind thing. So this is actually just what happens when you go deeper and deeper and deeper in your meditation, especially again these bliss states. When you come out, that's when you can ask that question, who was I in my early life? I can't prove that to you. I can tell you how to do it. So it's your own understanding and knowledge. That's where we have the memories of past lives. They used to be common knowledge for everybody, even in Christianity. In 543 AD, Emperor Vigilius uh, and no, sorry, the Pope Vigilius was very much into reincarnation. The Emperor Justinian II, this was in Byzantium, uh, was against it. So the Emperor told the Pope, you have to make reincarnation anathema. In other words, against Christianity. The Pope at the time refused. The Emperor put him in jail for one year. And prisons in those days, I mean, they were much, much, much tougher than you have here in Australia. And so after one year, he gave in. And that was where uh, reincarnation was banned from the Christian church. There was no Anglican and Catholics in those days. That split hadn't happened yet. So for the first 500 years of Christianity, it was accepted. Check that out on Wikipedia. Okay? Okay, so I think it's nice time now. Please I apologize for those people who had questions online, but we did announce we're having a ceremony today. So we do need, can people move to the sides who want to uh, enjoy the lion or the dragon dance? or cavorting. And please excuse us, it is very loud. So you come to the sides in the center there so the dragons can do their stuff. So please don't everyone go straight away, otherwise those lions and dragons might eat me. Are you ready? Four. Yeah, please. Let the lions come in. Are they coming in, coming in yet? Are they scared? Oh, they're scared. Yeah. At least you're on time today. I don't know which is the right time.
That's good. Got half a line there. Speakers on or off? They're on, yes. Male and female lines. Okay, now they're going to put the lion heads on. Does that look like a lion to you or a dragon, a monster? Please don't be scared of them. Just keep your precepts and they will be kind to you. Excellent. Oh, pretty scary. Here they come. One, two.
Okay. Okay, let's give him a big hand. Thank you very much, Lion Dancers. <laughs> Hello, everybody. The Lions perf troop performers, they are from the Chunghua Association. Yeah. The leaders are Aaron Lung and Ben Lim. A big applause to them and to the members of the troop. That's wonderful. And again, thank you all for coming so late at night and also so much energy. So it's a wonderful thing. Sorry? Oh, yes. Excellent. Thank you all for coming. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. So, I think basically it's a, <laughs> it's a nice time to finish off. Should we do some more? We can't do really questions and answers after that. So now we'll finish off. We'll, people are going already. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And anyone who wishes to stay to help clean up. <laughs> or to ask some questions. I'll be sitting here for quite a few more minutes. So maybe if those who are still here, maybe we can bow three times to Buddha Dhamma Sangha to finish off. That's a lovely ceremony to finish off the formal part of this evening. What did you just bow to? Virtue, peace, and compassion. Yes. And Happy New Year to you.